Uh, you ever had one of those days when uh, absolutely everything seems to go wrong? You just can't seem to get anything right. I, I see a lot of heads going up and down, and a little bit of immediate ad- identification, where you uh, sort of blunder your way through life, and every time you open your mouth, you insert your foot and uh, look back on a day that's uh, pretty well botched and uh, wonder where you're going to go from here. Um, It seems to me that the Apostle Paul had uh, days like that, Uh, one of which Luke reports to us in the 23rd chapter of Acts, Acts 23. Uh, Just to refresh your mind a little bit on what, uh, what, what occurred previously, in case you weren't here last week in chapter 22, Paul was... Uh, minding his own business. He was in the temple worshiping. When a mob broke through uh, the doors and dragged him out into the outer court and uh, tried to kill him. And uh, were it not for the intervention of the Roman uh, officials in Jerusalem, uh, he would have been stamped to death. The, uh, the commander took him back to the fortress uh, which overlooked the, the temple area, put him in the barracks, Thought that he'd be safe there uh, for a time. And then in verse uh, 30 of chapter 22, we're told that the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. This, you'll remember, is the uh, Supreme Court of Israel, very august body, the Burgers and O'Connells and... uh, Blackmums and marshals and whites and people of that of that sort. It's a very serious occasion. Uh, it, it was, in in many ways, Paul's last opportunity to preach the gospel to his people. He he loved. He absolutely loved the Jewish people. Uh, he had written the book of Romans just a few months before, in which he states his love for him, and he loved them so much. He says he was willing to be cut off. He was willing to have his name blotted out of the book of life for their sake. And more than anything else, he wanted to go to Jerusalem and, and preach the gospel. But as we've seen, he was dead wrong in going. The body of Christ uniformly counseled against it. All the prophets spoke, speaking in the name of the Holy Spirit, told him not to go. But against all of that counsel, he went to Jerusalem. And, and as we saw, his motives were proper. He loved these people. He wanted to preach to them. But every time... Paul got together with the Jews. It was like sticking a piece of steel in a grinder. The sparks would fly and there'd be noise and confusion and and all sorts of terrible things would happen. And that's exactly what occurred on this particular day. Luke tells us that Paul, looking intently at the Sanhedrin, said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this point, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Not the best way to start, kind of a left-footed beginning. Uh, Luke had a fascination, sort of a preoccupation with, with the way Paul looked at people. You may have picked that up in some of our prior studies. He, very often, Luke will describe Paul looking intently. Uh, there are a lot of explanations for that. For myself, I think it's because Paul was partially blind. He couldn't see well. He had to squint to see. And on this uh, particular occasion, he uh, squinted up at the Supreme Court, probably trying to recognize someone he knew because he'd been a member of this body at at some time uh, previous. Uh, 
And uh, he, he begins to speak, and he, when he does so, he makes two very grave tactical errors. In the first place, he presumes upon his former relationship with the Sanhedrin. He starts out and he says, Brothers... And with that one word, he offended everyone on the court because the, just as today there, there is legal protocol that you have to follow in, in addressing the court, so it was true in those days. You don't uh, walk into a courtroom today and say, Hi, Judge. Uh, you refer to him as Your Honor and ladies and gentlemen of the jury. There, there's, a, there, there's established legal procedure. Well, Paul has swept all of that aside and, and uh, blundered his way into this thing. And he says, Brothers, I have been right all my life. Basically, that's what he says. So he came across not only as uh, rude, but arrogant. And the high priest spoke to one of the soldiers standing by Paul and said, Cuff him in the mouth. And Paul lost his temper. And he, he says to the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Sounds like some of the things I've said. You sit there to judge me according to the law, let you, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Actually, Paul was right on two counts. It was illegal for him to be struck in Jewish law, just as in our law. The prisoner was assumed to be uh, uh, innocent until proven guilty. So it was against the law to strike a prisoner while he was in the dock. And uh, he was also writing call, and calling Ananias a hypocrite. You realize that's what he's calling him. Uh, the only thing that Jews whitewashed was uh, were tombs as a way of marking them because uh, it, was a, it was contrary to law to touch a dead body. It defiled a person, and so they whitewashed their tombs so they could be seen from long distances. He's calling him what Jesus called the Pharisees, uh, whitewashed sepulchers, a hypocrite. Looked good on the outside, but rotten on the inside. And it's true, he was. He was a crook. He had his hand in the till. He'd been stealing money for years from the other priests. But uh, even if he was a crook, that uh, isn't the way to win judges and influence courts. By losing your temper and shouting at them and telling, calling them hypocrites. And uh, those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul backed up, he had to apologize. Brothers, I didn't realize he was a high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I don't think Paul could see him. I think that's why he didn't realize he was the high priest. High priest sat in a particular place on the court, and he wore a particular kind of garb, and he should have been easily identifiable. But I don't think Paul could see him. Didn't realize. The voice just came out of the court, and he shouted back, and uh, didn't realize it was the high priest. Because the law did say, you shall not speak evil of the leader of your people. Paul was embarrassed, disgraced. He realized he'd really put his foot in it. He'd blown his last chance to defend himself before the Sanhedrin. But uh, Paul's a very resourceful man, and he has another, another approach. And so he, he happens to look around the court, and he notices something. Luke tells us about it in uh, verse 8, verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, or realizing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Paul happened to, to notice, or perhaps he was already aware of the fact, that the court was divided into liberals and conservatives. 
just as our Supreme Court is today, except the issue here was more theological than judicial. The uh, liberals were the Sadducees. They didn't take Scripture seriously. They didn't believe in spiritual things, really. They are just materialists. Pharisees took Scripture seriously. And Paul realized that he could p appeal to those on the court who were on his side already. He was a Pharisee. You notice he uses a present tense verb. I am a Pharisee. He doesn't say I was. It was possible for a Christian to be a Pharisee uh, until the first of the second century when they introduced a prayer into their liturgy that cursed the Christians. But up to that time, there were many Christians, Jewish Christians, who considered themselves Pharisees because they took the Scripture seriously. Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. And he thought that all the Pharisees then would, would take his side, but what he did was cause another riot. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And then in verse 8, there's a little footnote that Paul, or that Luke uh, inserts there for his Gentile leaders who wouldn't know the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. In verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Third time he'd been rescued by the Roman army. Paul was just utterly humiliated. Three great, very serious mistakes, stupid blunders. And he lost his chance. He had no more opportunity. From this point on, he, he never again addressed uh, any of his Jewish brethren in, in Jerusalem. It was up for Paul. It's over with. I, I'm sure he was terribly embarrassed and discouraged and frustrated. He loved his people. He wanted desperately. To, his motives were good. But uh, by his own blundering... He had uh, made it impossible for him to continue his ministry in, in Jerusalem. But in verse uh, 11, Luke says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's such a... Uh, uh, the way Luke puts it is so delightful. Paul wakes up in the middle of the night and the Lord is standing. That happened very often, crises, periods in, in Paul's life when the Lord showed up, when he appeared and spoke to Paul. And in fact, he says, Paul, I'm not embarrassed to be on your side. I'm with you. As Hebrews puts it, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. I'm sometimes embarrassed by what my Christian brothers do, and, and sometimes I'm even more embarrassed by what I do and can't understand why. Why anyone, much less the Lord, would want to identify with me. But uh, that's not the way that the Lord approaches us when we have made mistakes like that. He's, he's alongside. He's still there. He's still available. And he says, as he said so often to the disciples, buck up. Take heart. Take courage. Be of good cheer. I'm here. He says, you've testified to me in Jeru uh, uh, concerning me in Jerusalem. You will testify for me in in Rome, he uses two different words for testify here that are slightly different. Same root, but slightly different application. The first word means you've thoroughly testified. In other words, you've, you've done the job that you've been called to do. There's nothing more to be done in Jerusalem. You were wrong, but you were faithful in your witness. Now your job's over. Now I've got a bigger job for you. I'm going to take you to Rome, to the center of, of the Roman Empire. And here Paul was down and out and beat and sunk. 
He felt that he was finished. He disqualified himself. But uh, the Lord says, no, Paul, we've got more to do. Let's just go about the task of getting it done. I'm going to see to it that you get to Rome so that you'll, you'll be able to proclaim the gospel. And that's precisely what happened. What follows is, is really an illustration of, of, of our Lord's faithfulness to his promise. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy in verse 12, bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Forty men got together and took a solemn oath to forego food and water until they had uh, brought this, uh, this matter to an end. They were going to take Paul's life. And this, I'm sure, would have involved great loss of life on their part because they were going up against the, uh, the uh, combined forces of Rome in, in uh, Jerusalem. And they went to the chief priests and elders and others that were in cahoots with them and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this, this case. We're going to kill him when he gets here. But um, when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot being present, for some reason the NIV leaves that out of, out of this translation, but the verb is there, being present. Paul's nephew was in the room when this plot was being hatched, which may, which may indicate something of his family's hostility toward him. They knew that he was related to Paul, and yet they weren't adverse to discussing Paul's death in front of him. And, I, and this is another indication, I think, of what Paul means when he says, I've suffered the loss of all things. His family had cut him off. But this young man was, uh, was actually a secret agent. He was, he was God's spy in the midst of this... Uh, uh, this uh, group, and instead of uh, going along with the plot, he went to the barracks and told Paul. Tantalizing sort of uh, uh, insertion here. I'd love to know who this young man was. He plays such a uh, part, big part, humanly speaking, in Paul's salvation on this occasion. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. So he took him to the commander. And the centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring the young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, probably a very small boy, drew him aside because he wanted to keep it private, said, What, what is it you want to tell me? And the boy said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin. He just tells him the story. Just don't give in to them because they're going to kill him. So the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you've reported this uh, to me. Then he does two things. He calls two of his centurions and he orders them to get ready a detachment of soldiers, 200 heavily armed inf infantrymen, uh, 70 cavalrymen, and 200 uh, more lightly armed troops to go to Caesarea at, ni at nine. Tonight, he says. Caesarea was the seat of imperial uh, authority in Palestine and so he's going to take him down to the governor's house and beside he wanted to get him out of Jerusalem he was he was nothing but trouble for the commander and he says provide mounts for Paul horses mules for his party and take them along so they can be delivered safely to Governor Felix and then he wrote a letter now, I'm not going to read the letter because it recounts much of what we already know you can read it on your own the interesting thing is that he distorts the truth like crazy through the letter he's very diplomatically fails to mention that, that he almost beat Paul to death himself. But he says, oh, I heard that he was a Roman citizen, and so I protected him. But it, in any event, the letter provided safe passage for Paul and 
The soldiers carried out their order, orders, took Paul with them during the night, brought him as far as Ant- uh, Antipatris. Antipatris was about 30 miles uh, away. They, this was a forced march. I'm sure these soldiers didn't want to have to get out of the sack in the middle of the night and put all their gear on and take this one man down to Caesarea. But they had to protect him. 470 soldiers around the Apostle Paul sort of gathered around him, and they clanked and squeaked their way down through the passes that lead out of Jerusalem for 30 miles, protecting him all the way. And, and with the knowledge that on both sides, uh, whenever they went into a pass, they were likely to be ambushed. And these 40 fanatics who were ready to die in order to kill Paul were probably shooting arrows and throwing rocks and all sorts of things. But they protected Paul until they got out into the flat on Epotris, out in the, the slope, the level slope that, that uh, runs down towards Caesarea. So there was less... Uh, it was less likely that, that they'd be ambushed, so they sent the infantry back. And uh, in verse 33, the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, handed Paul over to him. Then uh, the governor, Felix, read the letter, asked him what province he was from to learn whether he was uh, under his jurisdiction. And he says, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. This was just a preliminary hearing. Paul was bound over for, for trial when the lawyers came down from Jerusalem to accuse him. Then he ordered Paul to be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Took him into his home. <laughs> Didn't stick him in a hole in the ground as they did most uh, prisoners in those days. He, he took him into uh, the, the official residence of the governor. And, and he kept him guarded there but gave him a great deal of freedom. Paul, from this point on through the book of Acts, is treated with a great deal of respect and deference. It's a remarkable sort of thing. Just an illustration of God's control, sovereign control over this man's life. He said, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. And he has a spy in the right place who tips off the commander who, uh, who puts together a detachment of 470 men to guard one man so he can continue to preach the gospel. He makes his way down to Caesarea where in the weeks following he will appear before a series of, of Roman governors. Well, that's the end of the story. It's a, kind of a cliffhanger. Uh, will Paul be acquitted? Uh, <coughs> Will Felix become a Christian? <clears throat> Tune in next week, same time, same station. I, I, I have one conclusion I'd like to draw <laughs> from this passage, and I hate to repeat myself, but I want to say again what I said last, last week. Life sometimes is hard. Uh, it's not uniformly hard. It's not that uh, every day is difficult, but uh, from time to time, there are very, very difficult days. Uh, George MacDonald talks about uh, the the way we ought to counsel young people. Most young people, you know, are not happy. Frankly, I've met very few young people who are happy. I wasn't happy when I was in high school. And uh, I was talking to a a lady last uh, week who told me that... uh, she wasn't happy in high school. She was sort of miss everything, cheerleader and all sorts of things. But she wasn't happy. And uh, George McDonald says, when, when, you, when a, a young person comes to you and says, I'm not happy, the most appropriate answer is to say, of course. <laughs> that, that's, that's to be expected. That's just the way it is. Life is troublesome. It's burdensome. Not always. But sometimes it is. And, and we really need to face facts. A lot of people don't like to hear that. But that's a fact. I have a friend, Michael Contargis, who's a missionary to students at a university in northern Greece. He's a Greek. 
And he's the biggest chow hound I ever met in my life. He's always eating. He, he just eats everything at all, you know, at odd hours of the day, three meals a day and half a dozen meals in between. And he, he's just a prodigious eater. And I was asking him one day how he got away. And he said, well, he said, my philosophy of life is life is short and full of trouble. You've got to eat to keep up your strength. Well, I, I'm not sure about about his uh, his solution. I am certain about his conclusion that life is short and it's full of trouble. I, I think one of the one of the biggest con games going on right now is television. Uh, television is a great fantasy land. I watch television. You know, we haven't thrown a thing out of our house yet, but but it, it really is just fantasy. Um, and it's not the blatant immorality that comes through. It, it's the subtle stuff that tends to slip under your guard, this idea that you can get away uh, with almost anything. You can avert the consequences of, of sin, that people live happily ever after, that, that evil is exciting and, and, uh, and good is dull. It's that sort of thing. It just sort of seeps and creeps into the cracks of our minds and starts influencing our, our thinking and... and, and we live in a world of illusion. We think that's the way life ought to be. We ought to live happily ever after. But that's not the way it works. Uh, there are, I think, a number of reasons why the world is so difficult. One is the fact that we live in a fallen world and that so-called natural disasters befall us from time to time, earthquake and flood and those sorts of things. Secondly, we live in the midst of a fallen humanity. People, there's something wrong with people. Uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 1, in the last uh, days, difficult times will come. Now, the last days, you know, are not some uh, far-off period, the last seven years of human history. Uh, by, by scriptural definition, the last days are the days that we're living in, the period between the first and second comings of Christ. So when Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, times are going to be tough, he's saying the world we live in right now is going to be difficult. Not always. It's not uniformly difficult. But there, intermittently, there will be difficult times. Because, he says, men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. There's something wrong with people, all of us. And we create mischief and misfortune for one another wherever we go. And thirdly, I think life is hard. Because it's part and parcel of delivering the gospel. Jesus said, Blessed are you, and men persecute you, and insult you, and slander you. Because that's the way they treated the prophets. You're in good company. They, they proclaimed God's word, and they, and they suffered for it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, they all went to death, went to their deaths, as a result of their uh, commitment to preaching and teaching the truth. Jesus said, They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul said, if you live righteously, you'll suffer persecution. Paul says, it's, it's graciously given unto us, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. And earlier in Acts 9, when Paul saw the vision, saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, the Lord informed him that he was going to suffer many things for his sake. There, there, as John Stott puts it, there is no gain without pain. There's no cross uh, there's no crown without a cross. There's no prog Somehow there's a cause and effect relationship between suffering and delivering the gospel to people. As I said last week, we in the West, 
would have never heard the gospel were it not for Paul's willingness to suffer. Because I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Uh, there's a fourth reason, I think, why we often uh, find life hard, and it's because we ourselves make mistakes. In our efforts to do what's right, we blunder our way along. We become what someone has referred to as consecrated blunders. And uh, we leave behind a pile of wreckage. Well, what, what is the Lord's reaction to that sort of thing? Does He write us off because of the sins and mistakes of our past, the moral failures? And the sort of amoral um, mistakes that we make, the decisions, the unpremeditated foolishness, the dumb things that we do that tend to, to, to trash our lives. What's the Lord's reaction to all of that? Well, he comes alongside, just as he did to Paul. He says, all right, buck up. Be of good courage. Take another grip on me. Have greater things in store for you. You haven't disqualified yourself. I'm not advocating a low standard of, of, uh, of righteousness for service. Not, not at all. We need to be godly men and women. We need to exemplify and live out the character of Christ wherever we go. All I'm saying is that the past sins don't disqualify us. Present sin may, if we cling to sin, if we're living in a state of rebellion, if we're unwilling to, to repent and turn from our sin, that will disqualify us. But past sins don't disqualify us. And, and there's this sort of crazy idea that's going around somehow that if you have been divorced, you're done. You're finished. That's, that's almost the unforgivable sin. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why. Murderers can be restored. Adulterers can be restored. Liars can be restored. Why not divorce these, for goodness sake? Why does that disqualify us for the rest of our life? And you say, well, because Paul said in, in, in 1 Timothy and in Titus that an elder must be a one-woman kind of man. That means he can only have one wife for the rest of his life. But that's not what that, what that phrase means. Paul's uh, intent is that we be a one-woman man now, that we be faithful to our wives now. The past doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much we botched up our lives, blighted them. And wreck things in the past. It's over. It's done. What matters is now. What are we doing now? Are we, we walking in fellowship with him? And exemplifying his, his character. Uh, one illustration and one quotation and I'm done. In my mind, the, the, the premier illustration or example of, of the sort of thing we're talking about is Manasseh in the Old Testament. Wickedest king that ever lived. He's described that way. No one worse. He was a Judean king, reigned longer than anybody else, reigned 55 years, and he was absolutely worthless. In fact, he was a menace. He, uh, he brought in the Asherah, these uh, poles that were sexual symbols that they worshipped, part of Canaanite fertility religion. Put one right in the court of the temple so that people worshipped that rather than than the Lord God of Israel. It brought in uh, various occult influences, astrologers and wizards from the east, and sacrificed his own son to Moloch. Uh, the writer of Second Kings says that he filled Israel with innocent blood. Tradition has it that he killed uh, Isaiah, the prophet. 
hardly anything good. In fact, nothing good is said about the man in 2 Kings. Well, uh, after a few years of that, God said, this is enough. And he sent the Assyrian army on a little punitive expedition, and they put a hook through Manasseh's nose, and they took him off to the city of Babylon. And he ended up grinding corn, pushing a grinding wheel around. It's fortunate they didn't put out his eyes, because that's normally what they did. And uh, the writer of St. Kings, or Chronicles, excuse me, Chronicles tells the same story, and the writer of Chronicles, it's probably Ezra, says, uh, he came to himself, and he repented of his sin, and he called upon the Lord God of Israel. And God gave him back his kingdom. <laughs> he was taken out of Assyria, and he went back to Jerusalem, and he went back on his throne, and he reigned longer than any other king in the history of Judah, and he made all sorts of changes. He tore down all of the high places and pitched the Asherah out over the walls and, and purged the city and cleaned things up and began to live righteously. And, and God gave him back his sovereignty fully. Didn't lose anything except some time. And interestingly enough, his name, Manasseh, means forgotten. Now, I don't put much stock in names because sometimes they're just, you know, the correspondence with the message is purely coincidental. But in this case, it, it's really striking. His name means forgotten, which is precisely the way God looks at our sins of the past. Now, he doesn't feel that way about our present sins, but he does about the past. There isn't anything that you have done, any mistake that you have made, any sin that you have committed that once for all disqualifies you from a place of leadership or a place of service. Now I want to read one statement by uh, John White from his book, The Fight, and we're done. White says, of course you may get wounded in battle. Of course you may get knocked off your feet. But it's the man or woman who gets up and fights that's a true warrior. What would you think of a soldier who in the middle of the battle sat down and said, I'm no good. I'm a big failure. It's no use trying anymore. Nothing seems to work. There's no place for giving up. The battle is much greater than our personal humiliation. To feel sorry for oneself is totally inappropriate. Over such a soldier, I would pour a bucket of ice water. I would drag him to his feet, kick him in the rear end, and put a sword in his hand and shout, Fight! In some circumstances, one must be cruel to be kind. What if you have fallen for a tempting ruse of the enemy? What if you're not the most brilliant swordsman in the army? You hold Excalibur in your hand. Get behind the lines for a break if you're too weak to go on and strengthen yourself with a mighty draught of the wine of Romans 8. Then get back into the fight before your muscles get stiff. And that's what I would say to all of us. Get back into the fight. Let's pray. What mercy and what grace you bestowed upon us. What love you have manifested that we should be called sons of God. How totally inadequate we are, Father, for that name. But uh, we thank you that we bear it, not because of some inherent righteousness that we have, but because of your righteousness that's bestowed upon us. We thank you for your grace that makes it possible. We want to get up and fight. We don't want the enemy to... Uh, 
to deceive us into believing that somehow we're no longer equipped or qualified to do battle. We thank you, Lord, that you strengthen us again and again to be what we're called to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.